we are. So this morning, as we um, open up to a familiar passage, I, I was praying that because many times, familiarity breeds contempt. And as I listen to this passage be taught by somebody that's way further along than me in the Lord, one of the things that he said as he taught this was, uh, we're in America, and we've, uh, many of us, even if we weren't raised in church, we've heard about the resurrection. We've been around people that have gone to church, and we've heard them talk about uh, Jesus rose from the dead. My daughter says it as if it's just common knowledge. Um, yet, what you've got to realize is that the people that interacted with Jesus when they arrived at the tomb, they were not coming to find someone who was alive. They were going like we would when we lose a loved one. We go to the cemetery, we go to the graveside, and we, we go and we, we want to go and just remember. Now, if you're not from our culture, this might be weird, but all over the world, this is what happens. We go to the last point that we had contact with this loved one. And, and many times, unfortunately, because of the, the way that we do things, we go to the graveside where they're dead. They're, they're there and they're in the tomb. And so Mary Magdalene and some of the others, they arrive there at the tomb. They're not looking to celebrate. They're not coming to church like we do on Resurrection Sunday to go, yes, it happened. This is a remembrance. This is a reminder that the, the end of this life, if I die tomorrow, if I die 60 years from now, if I live to be 117 like that lady in Italy that was on the news this week, did you guys see that? There was a woman that was apparently the last person that we know of that was born in the 1800s. <laughs> she was, and maybe the math is wrong, but I think it's said that she was 117 years old. Now, if you hear of somebody, apart from reading the Old Testament, from before things really got bad, over time we've lived shorter and shorter lives. Despite medical advances, despite um, you know, us taking better care of our diet, we, we die earlier and earlier. And yet, this woman, she died at 117 years old, and I can't help but think that if she did know the Lord, and she gets to heaven and she meets Methuselah, he's like, big deal, I lived 900 and something years, right? So, but death is a problem for us. Death is a very real thing, and death is one of the, the greatest preachers that we need a Savior. Um, that's why many times if you go to a funeral and it was someone who believed in Jesus, the family's like, hey, tell everybody about Jesus because death is coming for them too. It's not one of those grim reaper messages. It's not an opportune time to try to you know, coerce people when they're emotional. It's just a reality. Death is coming for all of us. And we don't spend our daily lives thinking about death, but the reality is still there. Just because I don't think about it doesn't mean it's not going to happen, right? And so this morning as we turn to John chapter 20, realize that this is a day of mourning for them. And in the culture of the Jews, many of them, when someone would die, they would actually take off their very nice uh, Easter Sunday clothes, and they would put on sackcloth, which was something that was very uncomfortable, but they would afflict themselves. They, they wanted to show outwardly that inwardly they were broken and in need of comfort and encouragement, and so they would weep. And many times at a funeral, they would actually, if you remember from the gospel accounts, they would hire somebody that was a professional mourner 
because the more people that would come along and mourn for you, that meant you were a more important person. So they would hire mourners to come and just weep outwardly and wail and oh, you know, and it's just a very outward culture. And so when they mourned, they went all out. You know, we kind of, in our Western culture, within the week, more, more times than not, we have a visitation or a wake, yeah, which they don't do all over our country, by the way. In many places, they actually uh, don't have a visitation. They don't have the open casket thing. That's a, a Midwest thing. But then there's the graveside service. And then within a week or two, we're already on, moving on to something else. Now, obviously, we're not moving on because we're still thinking of the person. It's like losing a limb. It's somebody you've come to know and you're used to them being around. Uh, I still, and Kelly still, once in a while, she'll go through her phone and be like, hey, I, I need to call Miss Kay. You know, and just last year, she passed away almost a year ago already. And it, you just get used to someone being there. But my point is, is that they are not showing up in their Sunday best. They're showing up, they're grieving, they're mourning. They just want to go and remember all that Jesus said, and they want to be comforted by going to this place, and they go together. But I think it's interesting that the first people that went were not the apostles. They were not the disciples. Uh, it was not the men that were around Jesus the most. It was actually the ladies. Imagine that. Ladies are more sensitive than guys. And they get up, and it says there in John chapter 20, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. Now, who's Mary Magdalene? Well, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 28, it says, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, we know this is Sunday, um, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. And so Mary Magdalene and another Mary in this count. Now remember that the four gospel accounts, it's like having four video cameras when you're shooting a film. Uh, you won't see everything from every perspective. Some of these won't see. It's like it's a different story almost because they leave out certain details. But it's just like when you're, say if you're in uh, filming a movie, every camera angle doesn't show every person. And so in Mark's account, uh, in this same story, Mark chapter 16, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, apparently Mary was a common name, um, but then it says, And Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb where the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? So they're on the way and they're talking about it. Hey, we're going to go in and we're going to anoint Jesus. Uh, maybe they didn't know he had already been prepared for burial by um, um, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave him his tomb. But they're taking spices and they're doing what was customary. But what's interesting, and I, I keep trying to get to it, but I keep turning to the wrong gospel account, is in Luke it actually says that Mary Magdalene came. It says, Certain other women uh, with them came to the tomb bringing spices they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away. But I can't find it, but it was Mary Magdalene who was actually the woman that had many demons in her. And when Jesus came to her and he set her free from those demons, um, she was a changed person. And she, from that point on, 
did everything that she could to support the ministry of Jesus. Now, if you watch the History Channel, all these ladies are uh, supposedly, according to the, what I call the Heresy Channel, they say that Jesus maybe had some relationships with these ladies. But we see nothing like that in the Bible. What we see is these ladies, because of the impact Jesus had made on them by touching them and healing them of demon possession or whatever, they actually did all that they could to support Jesus' ministry. So back in uh, John chapter 20, it says uh, in verse 2, or I guess in verse 1, they went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, early while it was still dark in the Greek, that term actually means the fourth watch of the night. And so uh, think about when you have a newborn baby. Uh, When Kelly and I had our newborn Judah, we had different watches of the night. Uh, I would stay up till one or two in the morning. I would go to bed. This is when I took some time off work. And then Kelly would get up and she'd stay up with him once he woke up at like three or four in the morning. And then she would go back to bed and I would do the early shift. Well, this is before the sun came up. And so they got there as early as they could. And while it was still dark and they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, one of the accounts we just read said that on the way they were saying, who's going to move the stone? And these stones could actually be up to like 2,000 pounds. And so um, I've got a couple of pictures, and we'll switch back and forth through them. But Jesse, if you'll go forward to the stone. Here we are at the garden tomb. Now, that's uh, (laughs) two people that went on the trip with us. They were just posing for me while I was taking this picture. But the stone was actually this hewn-out round stone, and they would make a track in front of the door, like we have our sliding glass doors. And in that track, that stone would be laying there, and they would roll it in front of the door, and basically it would have kind of a ramp on it. So when you rolled it down in, you would use a lever or a pry bar, and you'd move it, and then it would roll on its own and cover the door. So to move it back would take several strong people to roll it away. So when they get there and the door is open, it would be very surprising because they were already trying to figure out, how are we going to open that thing? We're not strong enough to move that stone. Are are we going here for a pointless mission? Are we even going to be able to get in? And so as they said this, they got there and found out that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. And then verse 2 says, she ran and came to Simon Peter. Simon Peter was not with them. He was somewhere else. It doesn't say in this account where he was. But she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now first note, um, the other disciple is how John always writes. In, he writes in the diminutive. He doesn't use his pronoun. He doesn't use his name. He doesn't speak in first person or in second person or third person. He just says the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's the mark of John. Every time you see that phrase in the book of John, he's talking about himself. John recognized himself not as someone who accomplished great things, but as a person who had been personally loved by Jesus. And I love this because uh, what greater calling can you have on your life? What greater name tag can you have than I'm a person who Jesus loves? So as he says this, they've taken away the Lord is what Mary says. And they have taken him out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Now they get blamed for a lot of things, right? It's this name for no one, you know. 
well, I heard they said this, or they said that, and they say a lot of things. Uh, they do a lot of things, but who is she talking about? Is she right? Did somebody take Jesus's body? They don't know. <laughs> so she comes to this conclusion after seeing that the tomb is open and no one's in there. So for a person who's thinking with a natural mind and is emotional, you draw conclusions. Have you ever come on a situation? I know you guys haven't, but maybe I have, where I was emotional. I saw a situation. I didn't ask anybody else that was there at the time. I just said, this, this, and this must have happened. And then later, after I throw my little fit, I find out I was wrong. <laughs> I drew conclusions. I made assumptions. Well, you know what they say about people that make assumptions. But what happened is they say, they were, we do not know where they have laid him. Now, Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. I think this is interesting. You can kind of see the humanity in the disciples here. Verse 4 says, So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. <laughs> they're boys. You know, they're, there they are. I, and I beat them there. I, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying I was faster. Peter, you know, he was quick to speak. I was quick runner. And then they get there, and he's stooping down, Looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Notice this. You'll see this repeating here. He looked in, he saw, and he did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came, following him. Of course, again saying, I beat him. Simon was second, first loser. And he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. So Peter notices a little bit more, and we get a little more detail through John. And then the other disciple, he's taken a second look, who came to the tomb first. He says it a third time. <laughs> he went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So it seems like what happened was Mary and the other ladies, they went and found Peter, and John happened to be with them. They told him this story, and one of the accounts actually says that all the other disciples thought they were foolish, that everything that the ladies were saying made no sense. So they stayed there. But Peter and John, they, they take off running. They go and look. They're very gentlemanly. They left the ladies behind. They didn't even wait for them. And then they turned around and went back after they saw what had happened. But I want you to notice something here. It says in, the, in verse 5 that he stooped down and he looked in. He saw the cloths, and yet he did not go in. That word there for seeing means that he saw it, but he didn't comprehend. We were just talking about the ACT the other day, and one of the things that I failed the worst in was comprehension. You ever read something and you get done, you're like, I don't know what I read at all. I couldn't answer any questions about it. I read it, but it didn't, it didn't soak in. Well, I believe that the first thing that happened here, and the Greek word implies this, that he looked in, but he didn't really know what he was looking at. He just saw an empty tomb and he moved on. And then Peter looks in there. He sees more detail, but then he moved on. That word saw means that he looked in, but didn't comprehend but then the third one where John looks in there, 
Verse 8, the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw, and it says he believed. So people can see things and yet not believe that they were happening. You ever hear the phrase, I cannot believe that that just happened. It's interesting we say that when we've seen something happen. We say, well, I can't believe that. Why not? You just saw it. I thought seeing was believing. But it takes sometimes time for us to soak in the things of God. Sometimes God reveals something to us, and we just don't get it. Why are you showing this to me, Lord? And I think sometimes when God does show us things that we don't quite get, we just move on because we're, I, I think everybody's ADD. I think everybody has a short attention span. And, and, and the reality is, is sometimes we need to meditate on things. When the Lord shows us something, it's never just coincidental. It's never for naught. It's not in vain. He wants to reveal himself to us through everything that goes on in our lives. And sometimes we just need to take five minutes and go, ask the simple question, why did you just show me that? And even if it's just a quick prayer, I believe that God will answer that prayer and reveal it to us over time if we are open to absorbing it. They were meditating on this. They were looking. They were investigating. They were like these crime shows. You come on a scene and you look around. You have to see more than you're just seeing with your eyes. And these guys got there. They looked, and they didn't get it. But as they looked a little bit longer, and they dwelled on what Jesus had said to them, they believed. But here's another thought, a cultural note. This week as I was studying, I, I, I heard one person say this, that there was a Jewish tradition that if someone would have you over to their home and they would prepare you a meal, or in that culture, many times it would be someone you don't know. And they were very hospitable. If you were traveling through, there was no Motel 6, there was no you know, uh, Holiday Inn Express. You couldn't be smart because there was no Holiday Inn Express. But you would go and you would be in the square and somebody would say, hey, can I take you in? And it's a very Middle Eastern thing for hospitality. They, they would bring strangers into their homes they would feed them a meal. They would give them a place to lay their head. They would feed their animals. It was, you, you would be doing a mitzvah. That means a good deed. And so you would go in there, and they would feed you. Well, if you were fed and your needs were satisfied at the end of the meal, you would take your napkin that they gave you, and you would fold it up. Excuse me, you wouldn't fold it up. You'd leave it kind of tousled, and you'd put it on the plate, saying, I was satisfied. Well, in a very polite way, if you were not satisfied and you felt like you were treated harshly or badly, you would take that napkin, you would fold it. This was a very subtle way to say, hey, this place is not the greatest, and I'm not coming back. Now, in our culture, we'd just say, I didn't like that. You ever watch Andy Griffith? I, I watch it all the time, and my kids love it. And if uh, Judah's throwing a fit and that song comes on, the little whistle song at the beginning, he's calm. So why wouldn't you watch Andy Griffith? But in there, I'm always frustrated by the, the shows because they were more polite back then. If something bothered them, they wouldn't say, no, we don't want you to do that, or please stop doing that. They would just kind of, okay, I guess this is happening. You know, last week I watched the one where Howard Sprague doesn't know anything about fishing and fishing season's starting up. And he comes in and he says, hey, uh, I haven't ever done any fishing uh, Maybe I could go with you guys. And they're like, oh gosh, he's going to destroy our fishing trip. He's going to mess up our hole. He's going to make all kinds of noise. We're going to be babysitting him the whole time. They never once say, we really don't want you to go with us. And in some ways, that's kind of nice. And in some ways, it's not because they just need to be truthful with him. 
but they're being polite. And in that culture, in the Jewish culture, they would fold a napkin and very subtly say, I didn't like the service here. I'm never coming back. Jesus, it says there in verse 7 and verse 6, says, Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And what that implies is that when he rose from the dead, Jesus, they would wrap these cloths around him. They were like bandages, these, these short linen cloths. They would wrap them around like a mummy. But there was no sign of struggle in there, like he had just had to tear his way out. Instead, it implies that this cocoon if, of sorts, when he left, had deflated because his body was no longer in it. But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write that there was a handkerchief that was covering his face that was not only taken off, but it was folded up and left there. And many believe that what he was saying was, I didn't like the service here and I'm never coming back. You will never again see me in the grave. How cool is that? Now, that has nothing to do with what we're reading here, but I, I wonder if that has a little bit of culturally to do with what these Jewish minds are seeing about their Savior. He left the napkin folded. He didn't like it here. We won't see him again. I wonder if John was looking at that and he goes, I get it. The light bulb came on. Jesus said he was going to be brought to Jerusalem. He said he was going to be crucified in the hands of evil men. He said that he would be buried and that he must rise again. He's not here. That's awesome. Everything that he said came to fulfillment. And so they leave and they go back to their own homes. And I wonder if they were quite convinced because it doesn't say in John's account that they went and told anybody. It just says they went back home. But Mary, verse 11, she stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and she looked into the tomb. Now, I'm reading this and I'm seeing that perhaps the guys didn't say a word. Imagine this. Guys saw something and they left the ladies there and never said a word. This happens all the time at my house. I, something happens during the day. It's something my wife would be very interested in, but I know it and I just assume she knows it. And so I go on about my business. And then later she finds out from another, a third party that I didn't tell her this thing she's super excited about. She goes, why didn't you tell me? I would, I, uh, I'm sorry. You know, like, I, I, I didn't think to tell you. I just thought you already knew. You're more observant than me. But it seems that Mary is still there, and she's not convinced. She stood outside by the tomb, and she's still weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain, past tense. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? So here's two angels. She's distraught. God sends angels of mercy to comfort her and to ask her a question she needs to be asking herself. Why are you weeping? Go back uh, just a couple slides, Jesse. This one. Now you can't see very well, but they've got these bars in here. Those weren't there in the time of Jesus. Um, he wasn't locked in there. But my point is, is I got to go into this tomb in Israel. And they, many believe that this tomb is actually a tomb from that time. They don't know if it was the one Jesus was laid in. But I love that in, in Christianity, we are the one religion in the world where we go to visit the beginner of our religion, and we go to visit an empty tomb. 
when people that are Muslims go to make their pilgrimage back to where their religion began, you know what they find? A tomb with bones in it. They find a tomb with their prophet. But we go to a tomb that has nothing in it. Go back one slide. Uh, this, go ahead, you're right. This is the door to the tomb. And where I'm standing is actually where the stone would have been rolled in front of it. Um, but go back two more. About 300 yards from there is this, and I showed you last week. This is Golgotha. Many believe that this is the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified by the roadside because this place looks like a stone. But it's interesting to me that they buried Jesus to the left from here about 300 yards. So that's what they believe where he was uh, buried. All of that, I don't know why I told you any of that other than I'm just excited because I got to see it. But we went there and we saw an empty tomb. But Jesus has resurrected and, and Mary is still sitting there weeping and she is still upset. And they ask, the angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she answers them. It, it's interesting to me that she doesn't say, are you guys angels? Like, what's going on with this? But she says, she's so overcome, I believe, with grief that she's just, she's glad to have somebody to talk to. And she answers their question very matter-of-factly. Because they have taken away my Lord, then I do not know where they have laid him. This fact is still stuck in her mind. So she's, uh, verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now, who is Mary looking for? Who's she looking for? She's looking for this man that had a great impact on her life, dead and laying there. She's looking for a body. She's not looking for an alive human being. She's not looking for a resurrected human being. She's not looking for that because it's never happened before. Now, Lazarus, you could say, uh, she had known of someone that was dead and in the grave, and Jesus called him out. But the man that called that man out of the grave is now dead, so that's not even possible anymore, right? So here Jesus is, he's gone, and she's weeping, she's looking for him. He's standing there talking to her, and she does not see him as Jesus. How many times have you been distraught and in the middle of a circumstance and overwhelmed with grief, sorrow, stress, anxiety, and you're like, Lord, where are you in this situation? And in the meantime, he's right there with you. And yet you haven't seen him. But notice this. How does he calm her? Well, first of all, it says, she supposing him to be the gardener said to him, sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, I find this interesting because Jesus, just assume he's average, or below average if you want. He had been suffering for days with no food. He had been scourged. He had been brutally murdered on the cross. And so there was probably not much left. So assume he's 100 pounds or 150 pounds. We'll go a conservative. Well, it says in last week's passage that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of spices and ointments to anoint him for burial. They would wrap his body and then they would wrap with these spices and, and ointments 
and then they would wrap the claws around him to preserve him, to make it smell nice, but also to, that's just what they did. And so think about this. If you had 100 pounds to a 150-pound guy, what is Mary going to do to carry this body, and where is she going to take him? She doesn't have a tomb. She's just going to take him to his house, and, or to her house, and you know, just have him there. She's distraught, and so she's going, wherever he is, tell me where he's at, and I'll go get him. I, I'm, I want to see him. And he says, Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, have you ever gotten a phone call, and you hear someone's voice, and they say your name, you instantly know who it is? People used to hate it because I would call my mom and she would think it was my dad because I sounded very similar. But I'm sure there was little nuances where she knew, I don't think this is my husband, right? We know voices of people we're very familiar with. But as soon as Jesus said this to her, one word, Mary, her name, she turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. She, instantly, she was like, oh my gosh, this is him. She didn't recognize his face. She didn't recognize him standing there. She thought he was the gardener. Now, there's theories. Did he, she not even look up at his face? Did he look like a gardener? Was he wearing different clothes? I, I don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that when all it took was Jesus to say her name with his voice, and she knew instantly, this is Jesus. Jesus says, you will know my sheep because they know my voice. Mary knew the voice of Jesus. And the most comfort that came to her was not him saying, I'm going to make everything right. It was just her hearing his voice saying her name. Do you know that Jesus knows your name? Do you know that when we get to heaven, he's going to say, enter into the joy of your Lord, and he's going to say your name. And he's not going to call you a stinky. He's not going to call you some nickname. He's going to call you by the name that he has given you. And you're going to know it instantly. And no more tears, no more sorrow. That's the beginning of eternity. But we get to experience that before we get to go to heaven. Jesus knows our name. He wants to spend intimate time with us. And many times we don't take it, but he wants to remind us, I am with you always. He told his disciples, he says, I'm going to the Father, but I'm going to send the Comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He is with us. God is with us, Emmanuel. Not just when he was born here and lived for 33 years and then died, but now he lives within us. His presence is in us. And so we have that as a comfort. And I tell you that if you've ever been in the deep, dark tunnels of despair and you know that the lord knows and he's with you that's more comforting than any person in this life can give you so she turned to him and said rabboni which is to say teacher and jesus said to her this do not cling to me for i have not yet ascended to my father but go to my brethren and say to them that i am ascending to my father and your father and to my god and your god in other words, the time is short. I want to see as many of you as I can, but realize I'm not staying. I'm going to my Father, and that's what I came to do. So Mary Magdalene came, and she told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, if you read the other gospel accounts, she went and told them, and many of them didn't believe. Many of them were like, you are nuts. You're overwhelmed with grief. 
You don't know what you're talking about. But nonetheless, this is the message that he gave Mary to tell the disciples. So verse 19, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled. You know why they were assembled? Because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jews, and they should be, because their leader was killed by the Jews. So here they are, being disciples. People recognize them as having been with Jesus. They locked themselves in a room so the boogeyman couldn't get them. They were not courageous men. I like that. (laughs) But what we're going to see is an interaction with the resurrected Lord makes them courageous men. They were not courageous because they were fishermen. They were not courageous because of all that they had accomplished in their previous life. When they see Jesus, they become courageous because they know that the worst thing that can happen to them is death, and death can't win. And so it says there, they were in fear of the Jews, and Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side where he'd been stabbed by the Roman soldier. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace to you. He had said, peace be with you. In other words, I am with you. He's the king of peace. And then he says, my peace I give to you. And then he says, as the father has sent me, I also now send you. Remember last week we talked about how when Jesus was on the cross and he died, he said, to Telestai. He said, it is finished. And one of the ways that that meant is I have come and I have done everything that my master told me to do. It is accomplished. It's finished. And so he says, just as my father sent me to accomplish these things, now I, having done everything God accomplished, desired to accomplish through me, now I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I find this very important because when Jesus, excuse me, when the Father, when God, the Trinity, created humankind in the book of Genesis, we see that he formed us out of clay. And that all that made was clay people. That made nothing. It's just dirt formed into a form, right? But then it says that he breathed into them the breath of life. The word there, the Hebrew word is rhema. So this same God who created our flesh, who created our spirit, made us in his image, breathes into them the breath of life, the very thing that compels us to walk around and breathe and move and have the ability to interact with God. Lost at the fall because of sin separating us from him, now he comes, he dies in our place, He's risen from the dead. And the first thing he does with his disciples is he says, as my father has sent me, now I am sending you. And then he says to them, receive. And he breathes into them the breath of new life. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as they're filled, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he commissions them. He says, if you forgive the sins of any person, they will be forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, in other words, if you do not forgive them, then they are not forgiven. We're God's ministers. We, this is great authority. And it says in verse 24, Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, 
We have seen the Lord. This is their message. It's not, hey, let's go fishing. It's not, hey, uh, we're kind of bummed out, but life goes on. It's, we've seen the Lord. That's the first thing that they say to him. Now, they know Thomas, and they know he's a very drastic guy. We always give Thomas a bad name because as soon as Thomas says, you know, he's like, well, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. He must have been from Missouri. (laughs) The show me state. Show me. I want to touch. I want to taste. I want to feel. But then after eight days, (laughs) it says, took eight days, there they are. His disciples were again inside, and Thomas was again with them. And Jesus appeared again. The doors were shut, and he stood in the midst, and he said, Peace to you. Again, the same greeting. Now, it says the doors were shut both times when Jesus showed up. So we're learning something about this glorified body that Jesus had. We find out in the other gospel accounts that he ate, that they could touch him. It wasn't just a spirit being. And yet, I don't believe he climbed through the window. I think that there was something about this resurrected body where he was able to come through the wall, not like the Kool-Aid man leaving a hole. (laughs) Here I am. But more along the lines of, he walked right through and here I am. He appeared to them. And so I, I believe that that will be something that we can know that about our resurrected bodies, they will be different. We will be changed in the blink of an eye. He says, peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, and he wasn't there for the discussion, but he was there because God is with them. He said, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to them, said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. And I think he was commending him for this. But he says, oh, how happy. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a blessing for us who would believe in Jesus. Now, following implies a belief, but There's a blessing for us who believe now, but don't get what Thomas got. We don't get him walking into the room going, hey, look at my hands, look at the hole in my side. We will see him, but until then, we walk by faith, not by sight. So Thomas believed. And then in verse 30, John writes this, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, so as we look at these different characters that were approached by Jesus after he had been resurrected, what I want you to notice is that they come to him empty. Uh, Mary comes to him grieving. John and Peter come to him in disbelief. Same thing with Thomas, and the same thing with the apostles. But everyone that had a personal interaction with Jesus after his resurrection, their lives were drastically changed. They went from the group that saw that he was being arrested, that fleed and were not around, most of them, for his crucifixion. They come to a point where when we see them again, when they're arrested, they're rejoicing because they've been arrested to be persecuted by the, Lord, by the people that were against the Lord. 
when we see them again, they're boldly proclaiming the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And what 1 Corinthians 15 says is that if Jesus has not resurrected, then we have nothing to hope in. Our faith in Jesus Christ, if he did not raise from the dead, is in vain. It's pointless. We may as well pack it up. We don't need to move to the next building. We need to move on because we're lying to people. But if it is in fact true, then it's a life-changing truth. I was so convicted as I left work on Friday. Everybody's talking about having a good, a good Easter. And I'm all fine with the, the gatherings and everything. I mean, it's part of our culture. I enjoy it. I'm glad that on our calendar it says Easter and that we celebrate Resurrection Sunday all around the world at the same time at the time of Passover. But one thing I should have said to people on Friday is, Jesus is still alive. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. We're not getting together to memorialize a lost and dead Savior that we will get to see in heaven like we would a loved one. We're getting together to celebrate our Savior who is still alive and prays for us, who is still alive and wants to interact with us, who is still alive and wants to, us to come and see all that he has done, be reminded weekly or more often, daily as we spend time with him, and then we get to go and tell what he shows us. It's that simple. God is not dead. And I know that's become kind of a cliche because we have a song that says God's not dead, but he's not dead. It's not in vain that we worship him. It's not in vain that we would serve him. His kingdom will go forever because he lives, because he rose from the dead, I will too. And I told my daughter that last night. And she goes, well, I want to follow Jesus. I want to raise from the dead. And I'm like, I hope that's true. I, I want you to follow Jesus. It's the only thing in this life that matters. There are many other things that we are responsible for. Don't get me wrong. There are many other things that we can do. But the kingdom of God is a real thing and it will last forever. And we will never regret spending too much time spending with Jesus. And we will never regret serving his kingdom. Never. When we get on the other side of heaven, I think when we get, not the other side of heaven, when we get to be face to face with Jesus, I think one of the most overwhelming things is we will see him for the first time fully comprehending like John did in the grave. We'll fully comprehend and I think the tears that he's going to wipe away will not be so much like, finally I'm here. I think they'll be because we have so many regrets instantaneously. Oh, I wasted so much time. I wasted so much energy. Those were fun things, but they pale in comparison to what I missed out on because this is the only place where we get to walk by faith. When we get to heaven, we don't get to lead anyone to our Savior. When we get to heaven, we don't get to serve the kingdom anymore. It'll be accomplished. We'll be there. We will not regret it. So let me ask you this morning, if you would pull the people in your life and say, hey, can you see the difference that Jesus has made in my life? Would they be able to say, I can notice the difference? Every person that we see in this passage today that had a personal interaction with Jesus, the resurrected Lord, they were no doubt changed. Many of them died for their faith. And so that tells me that 
uh, if you've truly had an interaction with the risen Lord, you will never be the same. I got to sit down at dinner the other night um, with a, a buddy that I went to high school with. And I got to tell him the story of how God changed my life 10 years ago. And it wasn't like this flashbang, all of a sudden I was a totally different cat. It was over time. And I've gotten to have conversations with my parents. And my mom's like, you're just different. And I just look at her and go, praise the Lord. I was a sarcastic jerk of a son, you know. Uh, and there are still things that God's working on me with. But there should be a change. The gospel changes people. It does. Not to make them holy rollers or holier than thou. Jesus makes, him, makes us like himself. And people will either not be able to stand it or they'll rejoice because they're changed too. So let God change you as you interact with him. And, and look for that change. Pray that God would do that work in you that he did in the disciples and in the apostles and in Mary Magdalene and in Doubting Thomas, as we call him. May we be radically changed by the gospel and may the world see it and want what we have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the receipt that says that our debt has been paid, that Jesus accomplished everything that you gave him to accomplish, that as he was examined by the religious leaders and found without fault, and they killed him anyway, as he was examined by the government and they wanted to let him go, and yet they, they kept crying out, crucify him, as he was examined in death and found to be exactly who he said he was. Lord, may we be able to stand those same tests and be found to be true. To be true followers of Jesus when things are hard and when things are easy. And as a result of that, Lord, thank you that our debts have been fully paid and that we don't have to accomplish anything to please you because we trust in the one in whom you were well pleased. Father, help us to meditate on these things. Help us to examine them. Do we really believe these things to be so? And if we do, how does that change our lives? Father, we love you. We thank you for this great news that Jesus is alive. Help us to live like Jesus is alive. In Jesus' name, amen.